0: Everybody out this morning, I'd like to ask you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, and we will pick right up in our study of the life of Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of Mark. We have several visitors here today, and we want you to know we're really glad to have you here with us and hope that um, as you have come to worship God, that uh, in the process of giving Him glory, that you have found uh, edification and encouragement already. And certainly hope that that will be the case with the lesson uh, this morning as well. Previously in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has called certain individuals to be his disciples. And we've not been given precise records of each and every person who has decided to follow Jesus. But we were given the specific account of several individuals um, such as uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John and uh, Matthew, for instance. Uh, This morning, what's going to happen is from that larger pool of disciples, Jesus is going to select 12 men to be his special representatives in the ministry that Jesus has in the preaching of the word and in performing miracles and especially casting out demons. And the account of the call of the disciples in Mark's gospel is found in chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. And that's what we're going to study this morning. Verse 13 says that he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. It just so happens that on this past Friday in my Bible class over at Morningside of Belmont, we read through Exodus 20, Exodus 19 and 20, which are the chapters in the book of Exodus which describe Moses at Mount Sinai, called up to Mount Sinai, uh, into the presence of the Lord, in which the Lord begins to deliver the stipulations of the covenant relationship that he would have with the nation of Israel in the form, first of all, of the Ten Commandments. And I would suggest to you that this expression in Mark chapter 3, that he went up on the mountain, would have triggered in the mind of any Jewish person who read it uh, connections to the book of Exodus, Because over and over again in the book of Exodus we are told how Moses went up on the mountain in order to commune with God. And I think that the significance would be that Moses goes up on the mountain in the book of Exodus at the time when God begins to transform the nation of Israel from really not much of a nation at all into a nation. From a ragtag bunch of slaves who were related to each other. Uh, increasingly distantly over the generations of their captivity um, and begins to transform them into a nation. And so that same concept then, I think, would be behind what happens here in Mark 3, that just as Moses went up on the mountain in order to begin to craft Israel into a people for God's own possession, in the same way Jesus goes up on this mountain, we don't know which one, but he goes up on a mountain, in order to begin the process of creating a new spiritual nation, which will be his people. And just as Moses was the leader of Israel in the Old Testament, Jesus then, of course, is the leader of this new people of the new covenant. Another connection with the Old Testament is the obvious connection in verse 14, that he appointed 12 of them. The number 12, of course, is the number of the sons of Israel, In the Old Testament, it was from the 12 sons of Jacob that the nation of Israel would, of course, eventually um, be born and developed. And in the same way, the Bible is going to show us that these 12 apostles fill much the same role under the new covenant that the 12 sons of Jacob did under the old covenant. They are the foundation, again, of God's people, re-envisioned as a new Israel that has been transformed and expanded by the power of the Messiah. So right off the bat, there are a lot of echoes from the Old Testament in the nation of Israel's formation and what takes place here in Mark chapter 3 as Jesus selects these men to be his apostles. Let's talk a little bit about the role that Jesus intends for these men to fill, the roles that he intends for them to fill, that are outlined for us in verses 13, 14, and 15. Uh, first of all, one of their roles would just be simply the role of what it means to be an apostle uh, of Jesus Christ. If you look in Mark chapter 3 and in verse 14, it says that he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles. The word apostle in the Greek language is uh, the word apostolos. It was one of those easy ones to learn when I was in college and had to try to learn Uh, Greek And the word basically means somebody who is sent. And really the idea is somebody who is sent as an official delegate or representative to carry out official business, to carry out an important commission. In fact, sometimes in the New Testament this word is used not of the twelve apostles. We might call those the the capital A apostles. Sometimes it's used in in a broad variety of contexts. ...of people who were just sent, maybe by a congregation, to do official business. I think a term that in our vernacular, which kind of carries uh, captures the idea of what an apostle was... ...is if you think of an ambassador who is sent by a government to represent that government to somebody else... ...with all of the official power and authority of the government behind them it's not as if they had just all the inherent authority but they do have the authority of the power that sends them and so these 12 men will be sent out by jesus in fact that's what the text says Uh, he appointed 12 whom he named apostles later it says in verse 14 that he might send them out so that's what their job is as official representatives of jesus as the ambassadors of Jesus, The Apostle Paul in Ephesians calls himself an ambassador in chains and that's exactly what these men were. Notice it also says in verse 14 that he, sent, uh, that he appointed the twelve so that they might be with him. Now that seems like sort of a peculiar way of phrasing things, right? That they might be with him because to an extent they have already been with Jesus. From the standpoint that they are his followers. They are disciples of his. And I don't know if they were spending every single day with him. Or if they would go and spend time with him on specific occasions. But the point here is that now that these 12 men are going to be his apostles. It's going to be their job description to spend time with Jesus on a very intense and regular basis. And the reason for this is because the apostles have the unique commission of being Jesus' witnesses. That's a term that in a lot of religious contexts is used to describe anybody who tells others about Jesus. I'm going to give you my witness, or I want to be a good witness for Christ. And I understand what people mean when when they say that. But really, the apostles were to be witnesses in a very specific sense. They were to be eyewitnesses of the ministry of Jesus. In fact, do you remember in the book of Acts, in Acts 1, when Judas had committed suicide and it came to the task of appointing a replacement so there could be the full complement of 12 apostles? That when they gathered together to select a replacement apostle... Do you remember what the resume of that person was supposed to be? One of the things that it said is that this should be a person who had been with us from the time of the baptism of John until the resurrection. The point being that the apostles were to be eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and ministry and especially of his resurrection. And so when Jesus tells the apostles in the commission that he gives to them later on in the book of Acts, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, he means that quite literally. And that's the significance here in Mark 3 when it says that they might be with him. These men have the responsibility of being with Jesus. So they can then bear eyewitness testimony and tell other people about Jesus and what he was like and what he taught and, um, and bear testimony to the, to the power of his resurrection. It also says in verse 14 that another one of the tasks that Jesus gives the apostles is that he might send them out to preach. And I've emphasized to you in previous lessons from Mark... That preaching was a high priority for the Lord. In fact, I would argue that in terms of Jesus' own personal ministry, it is what he gave the highest priority to. In Mark chapter 1, remember that in verse 38, Jesus said, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. He did other things. And of course, ultimately, Jesus' mission is to die on the cross, to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but... In his ministry, he gives priority to the preaching of the word. And so therefore, it would make a whole lot of sense that these men that he now sends out to be witnesses of him. And also that he sends out to be his official representatives. Would share that same high priority in the preaching of the word. And then a fourth thing that it says here in Mark 3. This is on down into verse 15. A fourth role of the apostles is that uh, they might have authority to cast out demons. Previously in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has cast out demons, but it has only been Jesus who has cast them out. And he's made it very clear that this is another important part of his work. It is a part of the spiritual warfare that we've studied about in, in lessons, not only in Mark, but in our series on angels. As Jesus has come to break in the power of the kingdom of God in a world in the grip of the devil and display that he has the authority to be God's Messiah. And one way that he does that is to cast out demons and signify by that his power over the devil. Well, now Jesus is going to enlist other soldiers in this tremendous warfare who will also be with him in the fight against the devil and his minions. And so that's going to be another task of the apostles ...that's described for us here in Mark chapter 3. There are some other things we could probably include on the list, right? I mean, he doesn't specifically mention here miracles of healing, for instance. But we know that the apostles will eventually do that. But these four things, if you think about it, that's a pretty full plate, right? That's plenty to deal with right here. To be somebody who is a messenger sent out by Jesus as his ambassador. To be somebody who's going to bear witness to the life and teachings of the Lord himself to begin to preach the same message of repentance for the kingdom of God is at hand, such as Jesus preached, and then also to begin the work of casting out demons, even as the Lord did. That's a a pretty full day's work for the apostles, and that's what Jesus has cut out for them here. Well, let's look at some things about the men themselves described for us in these verses. Um, You all have probably, at some point or the other, learned the song, to memorize the names of the apostles. I got to tell you, to this day, that's pretty much the only way. If, if I have to list them out, I kind of have to, at least in my mind, go through the, the uh, Jesus called them one by one. I'm not a true theologian or intellectual. I figured that's got to be one of the defining characteristics that'll exclude me from that list. And probably in previous Bible classes, you have learned some of the basic information about these men. To be totally frank, other than Peter and uh, slightly James and John, we don't know a whole lot. ...about these men. Very few details are given to us in the Gospels. Some information is provided to us and supplemented in various traditions that came down in church history... ...some of which are probably accurate, some of which are probably not. Um, A few basic characteristics, though, about these specific men. Every one of the lists of the apostles begins with Peter... Uh, Which probably indicates that among the apostles he was someone who was outspoken. He was someone who was maybe sort of the natural born leader among this specific group. Though certainly the Bible teaches all of the apostles had equal authority under the Lord. The name that his mom and dad would have given him was Simon, or actually, more likely, Simeon. That's more of the Hebrew version of his name. Jesus, of course, gives him a nickname, as he does to some of the others as well, which we'll talk about later on. He gave him the name Cephas. That's the Aramaic version of it. The Greek version is Peter. In English, we would simply render it Rock. And as I said, Peter is always the first one listed in every one of the lists of the apostles. Um, There were two and probably three sets of brothers among the apostles. Of course, there is Simon and Andrew. That's one set. Uh, Also, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. That's a second set. And most likely, there is a third set. You might remember when we talked about the call of Matthew as one of the disciples of Jesus. In the other Gospels, he's sometimes called Levi. He's called Levi here in Mark chapter 2. Levi, the son of Alphaeus. And in the list of the apostles, aside from Matthew slash Levi, there is another man whose name is the son of Alphaeus, and that is James, the son of Alphaeus. And so I would suggest for you that probably that's a third set of brothers among these apostles. Interesting that Jesus chose um, among his twelve. Half of them would have been related to each other physically. All of the apostles were apparently from the region of Galilee, With the exception of Judas, his name, Judas Iscariot, though it is often debated among commentators, probably means Judas from Kerioth, which was a village in Judah or Judea. Otherwise, all of the apostles were most likely from Galilee. And the reason I say that is because in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, when the apostles began to speak in tongues, and of course Judas isn't there anymore... When they began to speak in tongues, remember that the people assembled who heard them speak in their own language marveled and said, Are not these men all Galileans? Which would suggest that at least the eleven were most likely from up where Jesus was raised, which is in uh, in the region of Galilee. One final thing about the listing of the apostles that you see is just as Peter is always first in every list... Judas Iscariot is always the last in every list. And undoubtedly, uh, the Gospels put him last because of his infamy and his part in betraying the Lord. And most usually, they will identify him as Judas uh, who betrayed Jesus or who betrayed the Lord. Um, An unusual group of men, I think. Certainly, probably not the kind of people that if we were to think... Uh, if you were the Lord and you were going to select the 12 men who were going to be the bedrock of the church, the foundation of the church, as Paul describes the apostles in Ephesians chapter 2, I doubt very much that we would have thought this would be the list of people that would have been selected. Surely you would have imagined that Jesus would draw upon the very large pool of uh, intellectual scholars of the law, the scribes, the lawyers, uh, maybe from the priesthood, from the ruling establishment, people who were uh, quite familiar with the temple and its regulations. And yet Jesus doesn't pull from any of those professional scribes or scholars or rabbis. Instead, he picks 12 very ordinary people to be his disciples. And what I want us to do this morning is to think about the lessons that we can learn from Jesus' selection of these men and his use of these men for the purposes of the kingdom of God. And I think the first thing that is important for all of us to learn is that the selection of these 12 men is clear evidence that Christ can work through very imperfect people to achieve great things for the kingdom of God. These 12 men made a lot of mistakes. And just setting aside Judas, who obviously is in a unique category because of his role as the betrayer of the Lord, but just setting him aside, as you think about the portrait of the other 11 men in the Gospels, let's face it, it is not a flattering picture to these men. There are a few bright moments. You can think maybe of uh, of Peter's recognition of who Jesus is and the good confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Or maybe at the end of the uh, sixth chapter of John when Jesus feeds the 5,000, but then he begins to teach about the spiritual significance of his role as the bread of life. And the multitude stumbles over Jesus' teaching and they leave him. And Jesus asks the disciples, will you leave as well? And Peter is the one who says, where else should we go? You've got the words of eternal life. Obviously, that's a very positive moment in his life. But you would have to say if you were going to draw a ledger chart of positive and negative moments in Peter's life in the Gospels, the negative side would be a lot more full up than the positive side would. Um, Whether it is his uh, right after the great confession, he immediately rebukes the Lord for even suggesting that he might be put to death. There is the initial step of faith, which would go on the plus side, when Jesus allowed him to walk on the water, but then he begins to waver in doubt and begins to sink. That would be on the negative side. Um, not to mention, of course, the three denials that Peter uh, later regretted deeply. And the same is true with the other men. I think sometimes we almost give Peter a little bit of a bad rap... Because, you know, at least he was willing to say something and do something. Sometimes you wonder if maybe the others were just paralyzed by indecision or confusion. They just never even did anything. So, of course, they didn't flame out like Peter did so uh, stunningly on different occasions. But the point I want you to see is that even though these men, Peter included, were clearly imperfect. Think about the times where the Gospels speak of the disciples or the apostles collectively When it tells us things like they were arguing among themselves who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. When the Bible tells us even after three years of teaching, they still could not understand the basic message of Jesus that he had come to die on the cross and be raised from the dead. They could not understand and they were afraid to even ask him about it. That's what Mark tells us. Clearly these men are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And yet, they are the very men that Jesus chose to use for his purposes. And I will just say to you personally that I find it tremendously encouraging to know that Jesus will work with imperfect people to do God's work. Because that's every one of us. All of us have flaws, all of us have weaknesses, all of us have spiritual blind spots. And if perfection was a requirement for God to use us in his kingdom, none of us would be able to be used by the Lord. But the Lord, knowing the fact that we are fallible and weak and make mistakes, still nevertheless wants us to be in his kingdom and he wants to use us for his purposes. This has always been true. All of the great heroes of the Bible were imperfect men. Whether you want to think about Noah's drunkenness or Abraham's deception with regard to Sarah's relationship to him. Or King David's uh, very public uh, uh, problems with Bathsheba and the way that he tried to cover that up. And the controversy that ensued because of that. I mean, God historically has chosen to use people who will make mistakes and who are imperfect but if they will remain faithful to him, can be used for his purposes. So I want every one of us here to be encouraged this morning to know that there is a place for you in the kingdom of God and there is a use for you that Jesus Christ can make just as he made use of these 12 apostles. Here's a second lesson that I think is very important for us to understand. And that is that Jesus is able to unite people who are very different from each other. Now, if you look at the apostles here, there's a, there's a cross-section. There are people that, that we might consider blue-collar, like some of the fishermen. Uh, there are some that we may consider slightly above that, like uh, James and John, whose father owned his own boat and had servants. So maybe that's sort of a step up from that. You have civil servant officials like Matthew, who was a tax collector. So there's a pretty good cross-section here of people just from a, from a socioeconomic level. But let me just point this out to you. As you, also, as, you always, as you remember, Matthew was a tax collector. He worked for the government. Another one of the disciples, though, who is listed here is a man who is described for us at the end of verse 18 as Simon the Canaanite, is what my Bible says. Most likely, that is not a geographical reference. Most likely, it is actually a political one. In fact, you probably learned his name as Simon the Zealot. The Zealots in the first century were ultra-patriots, ultra-nationalists among the Jews. They absolutely resented and despised the Roman occupation. They resented and despised having to pay taxes, And they despised it so much, they had no problems taking up arms and actually trying to rebel and fight against the Romans because of this taxation. And about a generation after the time of Jesus, their animosity against Rome will erupt in full-blown rebellion, which results in the Roman invasion and destruction of the the city of Jerusalem and the temple. So my point to you is this. If you were going to, to construct a political spectrum, On one side would be a Jew who was willing to work for Rome. A Jew who is willing to work to to collect taxes to fund the Roman government. That's Matthew. And on the complete other end of the spectrum would be somebody who hates that so much, they would be willing to kill somebody if they thought they could get away with it to try to rebel against that form of government. That's Simon the Zealot. It kind of makes you wonder what it was like the first day these guys met, right? You know, you know uh, Simon goes, you, you look kind of familiar. Let's see, we were plotting the other day about attacking a, a polling a toll booth over in uh, Capernaum, and uh, you kind of looked like the guy we were getting ready to kill. You just kind of wonder what the conversations were like as Simon the Zealot and Matthew met for the first time. And the point I want you to see is that even though these men were incredibly different from each other politically, Even though they were different from each other in their outlook, somehow, because of Jesus, he was able to bring them together and to unite them. Jesus has always been a great uniter. He was able to unite even his enemies, if you think about it. He united the Jews and the Romans by the time Jesus appears before Pilate. And Pilate says, Behold your king. You've got the Jews saying, We have no king but Caesar because of Jesus. You have the Pharisees and Sadducees who were rivals with each other religiously. And yet they conspire together to get rid of Jesus. Herod and Pilate had been at odds with each other over something. And yet because of Jesus, they suddenly become big buddies. So Jesus has always been able to bring people together, even his enemies. And how much more so should he be able to bring his followers together? This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2 when he says concerning Jews and Gentiles. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both in one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Paul's point here is that Jesus himself was able to bring together peoples who had been divided from each other for centuries. Jew and Gentile. And make them one new man in Him. And so I would suggest for you this morning that one of the things that we need to understand is that as followers of Jesus, if we will yield ourselves to Him and display the life and patience and virtue and forbearance that Jesus would have us to, then one of the things that happens as a result of that is we as His followers will become united together and will become close with each other. Where I used to preach up in Illinois, it was just an unusual congregation. It was by far the most racially and ethnically diverse group of of Christians I've ever worshipped with anywhere. And we used to joke all the time that there is no way in the world that group of 100 people that got together a few times a week would have ever gotten together under any circumstances anywhere else except because of Jesus. But because of Jesus, all of these people from every walk of life conceivable, from every rung on the social ladder conceivable, from every possible background, would come together and love each other. And that is testimony to the power of Jesus. We have diversity here, not so much in in the same ways as the congregation where I was in Illinois, but we have people from all different backgrounds here. We have people who come from generations of Christians. We have people who you're the first Christian in your family. And we have people who come from different educational backgrounds, different professional kinds of backgrounds. And what I want you to understand is this. If you look at differences like that as something to resent... It will pull you apart. But if you look at those differences that exist between us from age to age and from background to background, as a blessing to know that I not only have my own life experience to draw upon, or the life experience of those who are my age and like me, but that I also have the experiences and wisdom and maturity of people much different from me who can see things much differently than I can. Then what a tremendous asset that is. When Paul talked to the Corinthians, a very divided church, one of the illustrations he used was that the Lord's church is like the Lord's body and we as Christians are like members of that body. And in 1 Corinthians 12 he said this, For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. We should celebrate the fact that in our congregational experience here, there are people who are not like us and don't always see things like us. Because God can use each of those diverse gifts and opportunities and talents for his own purposes to be the kind of people he wants us to be. I think that, and I will grant you freely, this is just a concept that I've thought about. That the reason that Jesus chose such a diverse group of apostles is so that as he sent them out, they would be able to relate to all kinds of people. Some people, like Paul, can be all things to all men, but not all of us can. And what we should look forward to and work forward to as a congregation of God's people here is to be the kind of group of people such that anybody who would happen to walk in in this congregation and sit down, there would be somebody they could relate to, somebody they could identify with, someone who can make a connection with them. That's the power of the diversity of the body of Christ as the Lord intends. Here's a third thing that, as I reflect on the list of the apostles here that that really stands out to me about Jesus. And that is that Christ sees us as we are and he sees us as what we can be. And I'm going to draw this point from the two nicknames that are found here in the list. First point, he sees us as we are. That point to me emerges from verse 17, which says, Among the disciples were James the son of Zebedee and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name, and I'm not exactly sure how this would have been pronounced in Aramaic, Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Exactly why Jesus gave them this nickname is not spelled out for us in the Gospels. It kind of suggests that these guys were somewhat hot headed and temperamental. If there is an episode in the Bible that I can think of that would justify such a nickname, do you remember in the Gospel of Luke and Luke chapter 9 when they go into one of the villages of the Samaritans and the response isn't exactly what they thought it should be? Do you remember what they said to the Lord? Hey, uh, Jesus, uh, you want us to call fire down from heaven and wipe all these people out? That was their response to a uh, ministry that did not go as they had planned. That's what suggests for me that maybe the sons of thunder were called that because they frequently wanted lightning to come down from heaven and kill everybody. They didn't always respond the way they thought. So to me, that's an example of Jesus seeing us as we are. But then on the other hand, there is the nickname that he gave to Simeon, to Simon, Peter. Rock. And other than the fact that he sank like a rock when he tried to walk on the water, I'm not sure I could think of anything in his life to this point or even after immediately that would really justify a nickname which seems to suggest stability. Because Peter was many things, but stable certainly was not one of them. But I think that Jesus could see that he could be that. That he could be someone who later in his life could write letters like what we're studying right now in Second Peter. And almost matter-of-factly say, I know that it is about time for me to die. And I want to stir you up by way of reminder one more time. Which is what we're studying right now on Wednesday nights. So to me, this point about what Jesus can see is at the same time incredibly disturbing... And it's incredibly encouraging. It is disturbing from the standpoint that Jesus sees me and he sees you as we are. That there is nothing we can hide from him. That we might be able to put on a show for pretense and convince other people that we are something that we are not. But we cannot do that with Jesus. If we're sons of thunder, he knows it. Or whatever else we may be, he knows. And to me, that is a disturbing point in a way to know that there is somebody who knows what I am all the time. He knows what I'm like. And he knows what you're like. And so if you think you're fooling people and put it on a good front and you've got this very elaborate facade created that is supposed to tell people that you're really pious and religious and spiritual and all the rest of it... But you know that that's not the truth. You just need to be reminded somebody else also knows that's the truth. And he sees you as you are. But at the same time, Jesus sees all of us as we can be. And that is the beauty of the transforming power that Jesus can accomplish in our lives. Jesus did select imperfect people, but he did not select them so they could just remain fixed as in concrete in where they were in their spiritual life. He picked them so that as time went by, they could grow and develop and be changed and become more mature, still never perfect, but at least always trying to improve and go and grow. And Jesus sees what all of us can be as well. And he sees what we can be if we will have the faith to decide that I know I have problems and I know I have flaws and faults, but I'm going to give my life to the Lord and devote myself to Him and then put my trust that through His power and through His care, I can change and I can grow through some of the bad habits I have and I can increase in the virtues that I am supposed to have and I can be what God wants me to be. And so that's the encouraging side of the coin to me and what we learn here About these names that Jesus gave to this handful of apostles. I suppose the way for us all to think about it is if we were to be given a nickname that captured who we are now, what would it be? But if we were to think about a name that would capture what we wanted to be, what would that be? One of my best friends who was my roommate my last two years in college told me that when he was a kid, his dad gave him a nickname. And the nickname was Deacon. And when he first told me that, I thought he was uh, talking about there was a football player named Deacon Jones. I wondered if maybe it was like a sports reference, but it wasn't. Because his dad wanted him to always think about being a servant. And that's what the word deacon means. So he gave him the nickname servant. He wanted him to grow and develop into that. So this morning, I want you to think about what you are now, knowing full well that Jesus knows. But also to think about what you can be as you grow in him. Let's take our songbooks books out. If you use your book and prepare for the invitation number. I want to say just another thing or two before we conclude this morning. I realize that all, all of us understand that the apostles had very specific and unique obligations. And unique powers and abilities that Jesus enabled them to have. ...and a unique position as the foundation of the church, the apostles and prophets. So I understand that. And so I understand that it's it's a mistake to think that we can always take in every single way... ...everything said about the apostles and apply it to us. But I really think that the things we've talked about this morning... ...are absolutely legitimate lessons to draw from what we can learn about these men. This morning I would just simply invite those of you who are not yet Christians... ...who are not following Jesus... To realize that the Lord who would ask all of these people and many others to follow him. Absolutely wants you to be a follower of his as well. At the same time though he wants you to know that the cost of discipleship is a price that must be paid. That there's a price to be paid in terms of absolute sacrifice and commitment. To give up everything to follow him. But if you're willing to do that this morning. To put your faith in Jesus and turn from your sins. And be baptized as those who profess your faith that Jesus is Lord. Knowing that whatever cost must be paid, whatever sacrifice must be made, it will be worth it to be with him forever. We want to help you do that. If you're a child of God who has the responsibility of following Jesus, the responsibility to grow into what he wants you to be. If there's some lack in your life that needs to be addressed, we encourage you to take care of that as well as we stand and sing together.